Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you. Humorology is the study of how humor can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Dave Johns, and I'm a guest on Paul Barossa's Humorology podcast. Do you think everybody can be funny, can learn to be funny, or do you think there is a funny I, in your DNA? I think with comics, there's you, you can learn to tell a joke, and you can learn to write a joke, but the best comics have got, got that thing. They can just read the room. There are some people who are great at maths. There are some people who can play a chat. There are some people who couldn't tell a joke to save their life. You, you can get a couple of nice little jokes that you can use in a meeting or you can use in, in a presentation that you go, all right, well, this works. But I always say to, um, to anybody who says to me, oh, I'm doing a... Um, a best man's speech or something like that and I go well well you know um if you feel uncomfortable and you don't want to but because everyone's the beef like you know you have best man speeches where the best man's hilarious you know and I say just talk from the heart really and maybe have a couple of nice little gags but but you know you have to if you're going out on a big conference and you're going to do a risky joke that could be the that could be or you could just hit it right and it could bring the bloody house down, you know? It just, it just, but it usually does that when the person is known for having a good sense of humour, you know? And, you know, reading a room is a very difficult thing to explain. It's a good reaction, you know? It's a good reaction when you walk into a room, you know? Hi there, I'm Alistair Campbell. Um, you talked about funny stories. Have you, you must have a myriad of funny stories that things that happened to you um, that now looking back uh, are funny. Can you share one of them with us? Well, the w one that I use a lot in the days when we were still doing after dinner speaking. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> is a, a true story about not far from here where I live, Hampstead Heath running track. And I was out running in the area of the track and there was, it was dark and there was a guy getting mugged and I could tell he was getting mugged. 
um, and I saw, and he was on the ground, he was being kicked. And I thought, what do you do? Like, you know, it was, there were four or five kids who were kicked, beating this guy up. So I did this thing where I ran across, but I was throwing out different voices in different accents to pretending I was like a squad of policemen arriving. Anyway, they scarpered. And this guy was, he, he had blood coming out the side of his head. His nose was all bent. He was really, really badly shaken up. And I said, I'll take you to the hospital. He said, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm meeting, I'm meant to be meeting some friends at the church just around the corner in Savonat Road. Maybe if you could take me there. I took him there. They, I, I handed him over to these people and I said, listen, you need to give me a ring and you should report it to the police, right? And I, I didn't see much, but I can at least tell them something. So I gave him, a, I wrote my name and my number down, Alistair Campbell, I put my number, I gave him the piece of paper and he looked at it and he said, oh my God, you're Alistair Campbell. I said, yeah, I am. He said, I fucking hate you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford Brent. What does the role of attitude play in all this? Yeah, look, attitude is vital. I don't know if you've all heard of uh, a lady called Carol Dweck who wrote a book called Growth Mindset, and it's you know it's one of the best books you could, could read because I think that's all you want is your environment to want to continually improve. But without the capacity to accept failure and to be able to be in an environment and a culture that allows that to happen, you're not going to grow. Um, you know, I think about my career. My one goal in life as a batter was to get 100. And the amount of times I've walked across that line, Paul, I can tell you day in, day out and got your noughts, you got your 20s, you got your 30s and you have to walk back across the line. The honest truth is you failed. You know, it wasn't a success on paper, but it if you have the attitude to say, right, I'll get straight back in the nets and work on the next phase of it. That's the key is to having the humor, to having the lightheartedness, to having the perception that it's, um, it's a fun process. It's kind of like uncovering and discovering. Uh, that's what you want. That's what you want from your employees. That's what you want from your teams. Um, environments that are just so open and accepting to those sort of conditions that you just keep finding it uh, a way of growing. So, yeah, I, I, I think um, there's a really good concept by Simon Sinek, which talks about the infinite game. Um, and to play in an infinite game, it was all about growth. It's all about um, dynamism and just cracking on, really. Yeah, I, lo I love the American expression, which is that your attitude De uh, defines your altitude in mm. other words how high you will go and I think what holds a lot of people back and that's business leaders that's people in sport that's people in show business is the attitude of I can't do it uh, I won't do it and uh, winners like yourself always have that okay I didn't get 100 today but guess what I'm going to work mm. that little bit harder to get 100 mm. next time Hi, I'm uh, not Harry Kane. Uh, um, I'm actually Alex McGowan, and I'm asking you to listen to uh, what's his name, Paul Barras. Paul Barras's uh, Humorology podcast. I mean, I remember years ago. I mean, I started in what 1990. In 1992, I can remember it vividly. That was about 94. Uh, I was in Manchester, and I'd done a gig uh, the night before, and um, I hung around that night, stayed with a friend. The next day, I went and bumped into one of the audience members, and this this fellow came up to me, and he said. Uh, he said, uh, enjoy the show. He said, but you shouldn't be doing June and Clary. You shouldn't be doing June and Clary because you're not gay. And you're doing June and Clary. And it's offensive to the gay community if you're doing June and Clary. And I thought, I, I, I had to sort of be dragged away from an argument with this guy by my friend because I was saying, if I don't do people as an impressionist, 
you know, I, and I, everybody did Julian in those days, of course, we all did, you knew him well, <laughs> and probably still do, Paul. And it was a wonderful voice too, and Julian was everywhere on the television and being very funny, I thank you. Um, <laughs> but if I said, oh, I'm not going to do gay characters because I'm not gay, then I'm sort of being aware that there's a difference and I'm ostracizing that community, if you like, from my act, and you think, what sort of world is that when you can't do, or you know, nowadays, Alan Carp, who's hell, you can't do Alan Carp because you haven't got big tapes or something, or, or because you're not gay, or because you're not from Northampton. And you think, well, on what grounds can you now impersonate anybody or make any joke? It's, uh, it's, it's just gone so far that, you know, and also causing offense to a point is what motivated a lot of comedians of our generation not causing offence to individuals or groups, I suppose, but, I mean, look at someone like Jimmy Carr. He pushes it as far as he can and will always upset somebody with practically every joke he comes out with. But you accept that and you think, yeah, but it's a joke. You know, it's... But then do jokes reinforce stereotypes? Do they reinforce a packing order within society and within, a, within an office situation, within a business situation? I think that's important. Are you, with your humour actually reinforcing a stereotypical situation. Hello, I'm Marcus Brigstock, and very soon I'll be appearing with Paul Barros on the Humorology podcast. You should listen to it. What advice would you give to uh, people uh, about dealing with hecklers? Somebody who has to get up and make a speech at a business event or a, a wedding? Or, uh, and yeah, this, is, this is easy. It's easier than everyone thinks. So the number of people who ask me and all of my friends um, about a best man speech. That's the one. Yes. That's what people come to you for. Oh, I've got to deliver a best man speech. What shall I do? What shall I do? And you go, well, what, what, what do you want to do? And they'll always tell you the same thing. They'll always say, oh, I thought I'd get up and call the groom a bit of a twat. And then I'd say how many people he'd shagged. And then I'd mention the time he crashed his car. <laughs> and I give them the same advice every time. I say, get up at the beginning of your speech and say, tell the audience how much you love the groom. Tell them, this is my dear, dear friend and he's asked me to be his best man and I am so happy to see him here today doing this beautiful thing, marrying someone who he loves, who I'm coming to know and who I love and it makes me so happy, right? That audience will allow that best man to be the least funny human on earth, dry and to, and and I'm I'm talking about someone then trying to be funny, it couldn't matter less. So so the advice is simple: it's be nice, be nice. Hello, this is William Hague. So so what would your advice be for people who are making business speeches, for instance? Well, I think my advice for a business speech or, or any sort of speech is um, the main thing to decide is what is the message of your speech, the serious message of it, and, um, and to have a clear structure of your speech so that people can follow the argument. And then you put the words around that. It's only like, it's like building a building. You need the foundations, you need the structure, then you put the bricks on, and that, those are the words. Well, then when you're at that stage, it might be appropriate to decorate it with some uh, flourishes, or it might be appropriate to draw particular attention to some part of your structure uh, with something that is that turns out to be quite humorous, but it has to be built on it. 
it's not like, okay, we've got a speech and now we've got a joke that we happen to know. So we'll stick this joke into the speech. Well, no, no, it, the, the, the humor has to arise from the speech. Um, and so it's, it's not just that you happen to know something humorous. So my advice is to think of it that way. And also, I would argue from a psychological standpoint, I'd kind of go to the Maya Angelou, people don't remember what you said to them. They, they remember how you, you made them feel. And yes. if you've made somebody laugh, you've actually made them feel joyous for want of a, a, another word. So you've shifted their state. Do you, do you think that's yeah. true? Well, yes, I think that's right. You're put, you've studied this much more than I have, so I haven't really thought about it like, I think you're right, yes. The way I think about it is that um, if you want to hold an audience's attention, you have to get them to do things, you know, because of course, faced with somebody talking, one person talking continuously, people's minds drift off. Uh, the human brain wasn't really, didn't evolve for that, to just sit you know, around the campfire listening to the same person for an hour. So therefore, if you're going to impose on that brain this long monologue, you do have to liven it up for them to keep them engaged. Now, that can be from getting them to applaud or to cheer uh, or to cry. But it, it very often, the best way of doing that is to get them to laugh. That re-engages them. Uh, gives them some connection with the speaker and it gets their attention back. And so I often tell people if they're going up to be selected as a, as a parliamentary candidate, for instance, and they've just got 10 minutes to give a speech to a group of people they've never seen before to get them to vote for them, I say, well, you make sure that every 90 seconds you get that audience to do something. Um, it might be to laugh, it might be to clap, but they will remember you they've got to try to remember 10 different people who appeared before them for 10 minutes and if you get them to do something every 90 seconds they will remember you hi my name is rory sutherland and i'll shortly be appearing on the humorology podcast and so the reason i'm kind of a bit famous accidentally is i made a kind of gag on ted where i said look they're spending six billion reducing the journey time uh between Paris and London, and they're laying down new tracks between St Pancras and Folkestone on the coast. And this will reduce the journey time by about 40 minutes. It'll cost six billion quid. And then I said, you know, a serious point. Well, are we absolutely sure that not you wouldn't achieve the same extra desirability of the journey, not by reducing its duration, but by simply putting Wi-Fi on the trains, which wouldn't cost six billion. It would cost about 40, if you wanted sort of 5G along the tracks, it would probably cost 50 or 60 million, but it might actually have a greater effect in getting people to abandon the aircraft for the train. And then I added the gag. If you really want to go large share, why don't you just employ all of the world's top male and female supermodels, get them to walk up and down the train, handing out free Chateau Petrus to all the passengers. It'll only cost you about a billion pounds. And then people will ask for the trains to be slowed down. <laughs> right now, that is an absurdist joke, but it's making a really serious point. 
which is that are we exclusively focusing on the numerical metric that engineers love, which is duration of journey and speed of train and usability of rolling stock? And we're completely neglecting the real human reasons, the toothpaste reasons, why someone might choose a train to go to Paris rather than a plane. And what you've actually done is you've frozen humanity out of the equation with your stupid transport economics um, value metrics. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my name is John Sweeney. I've seen some terrible things. Um, in the world, but it's always world when things are in the dark. And humour, at least some of the time, can help shed lights. I can also get you through those dark things. So there's a particular, there's a gruesome example. Actually, both examples are gruesome. Um, I, I did in '88 as a young freelance reporter um, for the Observer before I got my job. I went to Rwanda, Burundi, and there was a small series of massacres nothing like as dark as the ones that happened in 95. And we knew there was a mass grave, um, but there was an army roadblock. And these guys with guns were preventing us, media from, from France, from Belgium, from Britain, to, to see the evidence of their war crimes. And, and I was so inexperienced, and again, an arrogant prick, that I wouldn't take no. And there's like 12 journalists, but I'm the guy and I go for the, um, I think, Burundian officer and I go for him um, big time and um, I win the argument. They let us through. 
but as we go through, I get in the car, somebody's giving me a lift because I've got no money. I'm freelance. I'm on my own. And this Belgian reporter says, you remind me of, uh, of John Cleese in, in, in Faulty Towers. <laughs> Thank you very much. Fuck you. But no, he said, well done. You were like John Cleese. I was, and it's kind of embarrassing. But anyway, I was. Um, and I can be. Anyway, we got there. We took the pictures. We talked to some people. You could smell um, the mass death. And we found some bones. Um, and and they basically there was enough for us to tell um, the authorities go and hunt you know find this place we got enough not not a crystal clear story but a sense that something very dark had happened and we had some evidence so we had to get out of there before they rejoined the bones as we drove away there's a car full of good people good reporters four of us five of us and we've seen something fucking awful and we know that we haven't seen the half of it. And as we're driving, it starts to rain and it's been raining and our wheels pass some poor African guy and there's a huge puddle, the roads are shit and we soak the poor guy in this puddle. And we all start laughing in a kind of embarrassed way. We're laughing because it's funny because the, the guy's wet, but it's not the end of the world. Um, and we're laughing because there's some emotional release. And then I find myself singing Dem Bones, Dem Bones, Dem Dry Bones. <laughs> like, like, so what do you do? I mean, listen, you know, there's not a psychiatrist around for about a thousand miles. There's nothing we can do, but we're taking the piss. And it's a shield. It's a shield. Your dark sense of humour is a shield. And again, I talk to coppers, firemen, ambulance people, um soldiers uh, you know yeah you see terrible fucking things and you have to deal with them in some way doctors too nurses the same you've got to remember a dark sense of humor it's your fucking shield and hold on to it i'm john o'donnell founder of viral tribe so tell me a true story about something that's happened to you that's made you laugh i do i do remember one um <laughs> one evening, and uh, I'm going to sound like a terrible name dropper here, but you'll understand the, the point of the story. But um, I was very lucky when I was um, heading up the commercial team of the Evening Standard. We were very often invited to a lot of film premieres, and we were invited to the Bond premiere at the Albert Hall, which never been to a Bond premiere before. This was an incredibly exciting time. And so me and my wife basically went down to the Albert Hall. We had a few drinks before. And then we were then uh, going off to meet all our, you know, my colleagues and what have you and their guests in the, in the loggia, as I was told it's called. I was told off for calling it a box, uh, but the loggia. And anyway, I wandered into the loggia and... Um, there was just a, a, a guy in there, an older guy stood in there and he introduced himself. He said, oh, I'm John. And I said, oh, I'm John as well. And they're oh, great, fantastic. And um, we started chatting about stuff. And uh, he said, um, he said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, uh, you know, I head up the Evening Standard. And this, you know, he said, oh, this is fantastic. I love the Evening Standard. I love what you've done at the Evening Standard. That's amazing, amazing. Um, and he goes, I believe you just, um, well, because at the time we'd just won the license for London Live. And he said, I hear you've just won this local TV. I said, yes, I have. And he said, oh, well, I'm in television. I do a bit in television. Oh, right. Okay, what do you do? Because, well, you might remember, I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a thing called, uh, well, you probably remember, called Blackadder. And I was like, God, it's John Lloyd. 
it's John Lloyd, comedy god John Lloyd. I'm like, fantastic. God, I didn't have no idea. And anyway, so I'm chatting away to John Lloyd. We're having a glass of champagne. Two seconds later, in walks Michael Parkinson. And it's like, Parky, fantastic. He's like, oh, Parky, this is this is John. John runs London Live. Hello there, how are you doing? Fantastic. Rowan Atkinson comes in. Stephen Fry comes in. They all come in. And then as we take our seats, ready to watch the premiere, I suddenly realise there are 10 seats and 12 people in the Logia. And I suddenly realise... I'm in the wrong fucking box. <laughs> I literally, I literally looked over and I could just see my wife tentatively pouring her champagne back in the bottle as I was doing the slightly reverse thing outside the box. Oh, sorry, terribly sorry, terribly sorry. But of course I couldn't resist doing the, John, call me. Call me, call me. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, we, we we left, we walked out, and as you can imagine, we literally could not wait to tell that story to, to anyone and everyone. And even to this day, I still love it. It was absolutely ludicrous. Hello, my name is Dr. Richard Bandler. If people change the way they think, it changes how they feel, and therefore it changes what they can do. And the the irony is they've been doing it their whole life, you know. Uh, it's just they get stuck in loops because they learn too well. And some of the things we learn are utterly useless and stupid. And people who continue to do them, uh, number one, are unhappy. And number two, lose money. Uh, they lose time. The currency of living is how you spend your moments. And that's not just true in your personal life. That's immensely true in your business. That, you know, the more times you have to do the same thing, uh, the more inefficient it is. And if what you're doing doesn't work, then it's really inefficient. And when I've been hired to go into companies, the solutions to whatever I'm brought in to find are usually immensely obvious coming from the outside. That, you know, people have basic beliefs and they don't look outside them. Uh, so therefore they're looking for the answer where it isn't. And when you look for the answer where it isn't, you don't find it. Well, it's a very interesting because do you think that people actually think themselves out of being humorous as well then? I mean, or talk themselves out of it or convince themselves that they're not humorous? Part of my job with people, especially private clients, is to, is to get them to, to see that what they're doing is, is, is funny enough to laugh at. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I usually start my teaching seminars off by asking people is, you know, is there somebody in here that thinks about the same bad memory over and over and over again? And, you know, if you worry about a problem for 30 minutes a day, you, you've wasted 150 plus hours. And that means 10 years, it's 1,500 hours. And, if, and 40 years, you know, it's 6,000 hours. And when I ask people, you know, to look, I say, well, so you're planning, and they go, well, I'm not planning it, it just happens. And I go, no, that you told me this is your plan, that you can count on doing this in the future. You have to participate in it, otherwise it doesn't happen. And you know, if you don't make the pictures and say the things to yourself and make the feelings, then you, you get back this enormous gift of time. And when you laugh at a mistake, it saves you enormous amounts of time. Hello, I'm Neil Malarkey of the Comedy Store Players. And I know you talk a lot about the listening skills that, that you've brought to improv. Can you expand on that for business a bit more? Yeah, well, 
obviously I'm, I'm bringing improv, which is a slightly different skill from stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy at its best is beautifully honed. It's a perfect meal delivered to your table. Improv is a bit of a takeaway, a bit of a picnic. You see what happens. It's a bit messy. But the skills of improv, as you say, listening is number one. And it's dealing with uncertainty and diversity and complexity and differences of opinion. Uh, it actually started with a social worker in the 1920s in Chicago, and she was helping children, um, inner city children, deprived children. Maybe they weren't native speakers, and they were a bit shy about speaking up in class. And she gave them confidence with some exercises. And it was her son who then created a form of theater we now know as improv. Now, not everyone knows what improv, by the way, is. If you don't, there's a TV show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Some of your listeners, Paul, may be even too young to know what that is. But this, uh, if you're not somebody who knows improv, you're like me, 40 years ago. And I did, I'd never seen it. And the audience gives suggestions to the actors and the actors act out scenes and stories. And rule one of improv is listening. And of course, that's beautifully applicable to business. How do I listen to my customer? How do my li I listen to my team? How do they listen to each other? How do we listen even to ourselves, our unconscious, where ideas may come from? Uh, so um, I'm not bringing comedy, stand-up comedy techniques, although uh, when you're presenting, you do need stand-up comedy techniques. You do want something well rehearsed. You do want a point. You need to have a rhythm, but uh, but uh, here's the funny, here's the important. Underline this word. Don't do everything on a monotone. Find an attitude. Repeat stuff. Pause. All of the things that we know make comedy, whether it's improvised or stand-up. Stand-up, it's when you see a great stand-up, you know she or he has done it night after night, but they found their rhythm. They found the meter. Improv is more a little bit messy, a little bit jazz, a little freeform. But it still has the same fundamentals that, I mean, I think uh, listening would be applicable to a, a stand-up because they've got to listen to the audience and, and work off the timing of that. Improv is very specific because you really do have to listen. But doesn't all humour ultimately come from listening because you have to react off something? That's true. I mean, a great stand-up or comedy actor is riding the laugh. She or he knows when to time the moment, whether they're acting in a play or a stand-up. So there's listening to the fellow player, there's listening to the audience. And I, I thought you were gonna say, and I was about to applaud you, listening to what's going on in society. The great comedy writer, whether she's a stand-up or Shakespeare or Akebourne or Richard Curtis, they're listening to what's going on. What are people thinking? And they're articulating things that we've all thought but haven't even realized we have or haven't expressed it in that way. So there's a kind of deep listening to create material and there's a great listening in terms of the performance as well. The rhythm, listening to the audience, timing a beautiful moment and the moment maybe just that look away. Mark Twain said there, there sometimes there, were, there was never a word such a so good as a well-timed pause and sometimes as somebody said it's not the music the notes it's the it's the space between the notes sometimes that makes uh, music comedy hit us somewhere deeper than just intellectually i'm marissa peer i'm a therapist and people always think therapists are deadly serious and have no sense of humor but the best therapists use humor so do you think people 
laugh enough at their place of work? No, I think we should. I think we should all have, you know, I remember, um, you know, when I was a kid, every Thursday night, everyone would watch Monty Python and we would laugh. And there were certain things that you put on television to make you laugh. And I think we should all do that. You know, I have certain things I listen to or jokes I remember or things that I find so funny. And I remember years ago, I was at home one day, I was watching Crime Watch. When I finished watching it, I thought, this isn't, no, this has made me focus on burglaries and rapes and terrible. So I had to put on something funny. I think I put on an episode of The Simpsons. It made me laugh so much. And I went to bed and it changed my state. And I think all of us should have appointments to laugh. We should have something funny we watch at least three times a week. We should have a funny half hour. We should tell each other jokes. I think you almost need to make an appointment to laugh. I mean, one of the reasons X Factor was so great because people love Simon Cowell. We, you know, when you saw him and the whole panel laughing at somebody and Sharon Osbourne would be crying into a handkerchief and someone would be stuffing tissues in his mouth to stop himself laughing, you actually laugh with them. And some of the contestants were very, very funny without knowing it. And that kind of TV show is called an appointment because the whole family would watch it together. And, and I love the, I often rewind, I have to watch that bit again and again and again. But I think we should all factor something that makes you deeply laugh into our week, even into our day, because it's so good for your immune system. It's so good for you. I, I love the fact that, you know, because I think, you know, I love people to take things away from this podcast. And one of the things that I really encourage everyone to take away is your idea of having an appointment to laugh. Put it in your diary. It's yeah. fantastic. It's all very well to go. I go to yoga every Thursday at six and I, I go to Pilates every Monday at 10. But you should actually make, you should put something in you that makes you laugh all the time. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.